Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. I'm thrilled to welcome today my friend and colleague, Rabbi Denise Egger from Congregation Columbia in West Hollywood, California, as well as the uh, sitting president of the Central Conference of American Rabbis. Denise, it's really great to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me today. We're going to talk about Torah, and I want to ask you why or how Torah is relevant today, given the fact that it's roughly a 2,500-year-old, 3,000-year-old set of books or books uh, or book. Tell us, how does it relate to today? Well, the Torah really is at the core of Jewish life. And I think that uh, what makes it timeless and eternal are the things that's always made it timeless and eternal. And that is that the stories and the truths that it speaks to speak of the human condition. When I think of the human condition in Torah, I think mostly of human frailty. (laughs) The failings and the uh, unfulfilled hopes and broken promises. And I think that's exactly what the Torah addresses, is the human frailty and broken hopes. Um, That is what makes it timeless. I think a lot of people think that the Bible or the Tanakh, Jewish scripture, is filled with examples of what to do and uh, always uh, the perfect story of goodness. But the reality is, is that the Torah is filled with difficult stories, stories of, of family troubles and, and how people navigate those family troubles. Um, sometimes the Torah is teaching us what not to do by simply describing the frailties that are there and the humanity that exists in the stories is in part what I think makes it so timeless. You think maybe that's what makes it different from mythological culture where the heroes are less multidimensional maybe and more, although sometimes they're pretty dimensional in in Greek myths I I think sometimes the the Greek myths or the Roman myths or if you want to look at Aztec or Mayan myths, I think those stories also have, they speak to certain ideals and ideas. But I, I, I think one of the things that has made um, our Bible um, speak to us so greatly is that we can see ourselves in the stories. It's not story, or they are not stories of perfection. And the Jewish tradition, I think, does not emphasize the need for perfection like other mm. religious traditions do, but recognizes that with all of us, that we all have flaws. And, and, and what's so powerful, I think, about the Torah in particular, we see this in the dialogues between God and Moses, or God and Abraham, is that even the divine has flaws. How does it? And that, to me, is something that is, is really mind-blowing because we think of God as omnipotent and omniscient. and Omnibeneficent, perf- yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. Perf- so perfect. And yet, what does it mean to deal with a deity, if you will, that that reflects the flaws of humanity. They can get angry. They can rush to judgment. These are all things that human beings do. And, and so for me, the Torah is almost a mirror that we hold up to ourselves and to look at, to look at how we're reflected in the story. As a result, 
uh, I think it makes some of the stories more relevant, if you will, in contemporary times than have ever been. So spell out one of the stories that you think really captures this flawed God or this God that surprisingly reflects human frailty. Well, I, I think... Um, you know, one only has to look at this encounter of Moses at Mount Sinai, the top of Mount Sinai, receiving the Ten Commandments, and, you know, God already knows what's going on with the people down below with the story of, idol- the story of idolatry and the golden calf. Here, mm. Moses is away for 40 days and 40 nights, and they tell Aaron to make them a god, and will that man Moses ever return? In the meantime, God and Moses are having this incredible encounter something otherworldly, literally, so much so that Moses' face will radiate that glory of God on the way down, that he's changed physically as well as spiritually. And what would have happened if the children of Israel had just waited and they didn't do anything? What, what would have been the response? But that story shows God's anger, quick to anger, actually, not quick to love, mm. not yeah. Not uh, a story that shows that God has um, this open heart, if you will. It's Moses that has to change God's mind. And he not does to so. destroy. And Moses does it very cleverly. Yeah. If I haven't found favor with you in your eyes, you know, Moses plays it up, I think, uh, in the ways that one expects an earthly king to ego to be flattered. That's right. And he, he plays the kind of petty qualities in God about, you know, God, you know, what will people think? Right. You know, what will people think? You brought these people up out of Egypt right. to destroy them? That, fe- that feels that's very... So hu- that, that's such a human... That's an appeal to almost a human nature, not a godly nature. So what do we do with a God who reflects us? Is, does, it, does it undermine the, the transcendent power of God? No, it... I actually think it's something... I don't think it undermines the transcendent power of God. But what I do is I think it really reflects Genesis that says, and and we only think of it in one way. Ah. We think that God, we talk about human beings created, but Selim Elohim. See, we talk about human beings created in God's image. But I think there's another piece of that as uh, well. Uh, it's logical that there's another piece because right, it's, it's, the it, other it's reciprocal. It it's reciprocal. And, and that is about the deep partnership that we Jews believe that we have with whatever the eternal is. The covenant. Our the covenant. That it's, that it's not one way. It's a two-way street. It's a, tr- it's God's, a true relationship. It's a true relationship. And, and ultimately, why is the Torah so relevant still in our time? Because ultimately, relationship in relationship with an other is where you find God. So I, I get that, and it certainly resonates with me, but I still get stuck on the aspects of Torah that are kind of irretrievably time-bound and by virtue of that, hard for me to connect to. So when I read certain laws, let's look at uh, animal sacrifice. Yeah, they're you know, tough. Were, there were, there were channels on the side of the altar that would carry the blood away in rivers and, you know, killing and slaughtering so many beasts and then burning them and the smoke being a pleasant odor for God. I mean, that's really hard for me to connect with. And it's not, yeah, I can connect with Abraham trying to defend the righteous before God. I get that. That's kind of easy to connect with. But what's going on with a God who enjoys the wafts of smoke from burnt animals. 
Well, there's a reason that barbecue is one of the most popular <laughs> foods in North America. Because, you know, there's nothing like good smoked meat, right? I'm being funny and sure, flippant sure. with you. But but I, I think that there is something, not to say that this is what we pray for, or that this is what God still wants, or that this is what God maybe ever wanted. Um, but it is the human beings of its era trying to grapple with what will appease the gods. And clearly we've borrowed from other traditions yeah. in that notion of appeasement of the god. So that, yeah, it's in, our, it's in our books too that there was a formula that they used. That's the whole book of Leviticus. Formulas for atonement, formulas for the sacrifices, formula for how to offer well-being. And, you know, do you update do you update your formulas? Well, I guess so. We must update our formulas. Well, that we're not. We're not doing. We're uh, not doing know. that. And that you know, we can give the credit due to the generation that survived the temple and Yochanan ben Zakkai and the reshaping of rabbinic Judaism. But that's the challenge for a religious and spiritual person today. And I kind of use those terms uh, interchangeably. I don't. I don't necessarily religious see religious and spiritual. Religious and spiritual. I don't see them as opposed to one another like some do. Um, so tell me about the, I, the opposition that some people imply, and tell me how some you... some people imply that 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 you don't that to be a spiritual person is something other than being a religious. As person. As if the religion were institutional and rigid, and spiritual is somehow dynamic S- and some dynamic and free flowing. Nice. And okay. I, I don't necessarily buy that divide. Um, I, I think that the human impulse, there is a human impulse to try and sort through, to figure out what life's meaning is about, to try and order things and to give an order uh, to things. I think that's what religion has always tried to do. There are institutions about religion that perhaps are antiquated or old, and old-fashioned or simply not appealing, as just as you said, the rivers of blood of sacrifice. But that's because there's a rigidity that's happened among some of the elites in all religions. So, so let me let me recap what I think I hear you saying. On the one hand, the relational part, I think, especially for a Reform Jewish audience, but I think for a modern audience in general, I think we can wrap our minds around the dynamic relational part of of, of the stories in the in the Bible about about God, and I think they are inspiring in the way that you indicate. And I. But I also hear you saying those parts of the story that actually turn us off, that actually um, make us raise an eyebrow at the very least, and certainly don't necessarily make us feel connected. We should interpret those as other generations expressing their connectedness to God in their time, and that that fact of their connectedness, even if the formula doesn't apply, the fact that they were engaged in that process is where we find the meaning in Torah, even when... The specifics don't apply. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's exactly the perfect recap. And I'll tell you one of the. I'll go back yeah. to your sacrifice, animal sacrifice. I think, I think particularly, we're, you know, we Jews are urban people. Yeah. We've been urban for many, many centuries yeah, now. Yeah, that's right, a couple millennia. Yeah. So we're far away from the farm and raising an animal and raising an animal and then slaughtering the animal to eat it and and how precious that you knew, you know, yeah. Bessie the cow. I mean, this isn't just any cow on your plate or meat right. that you picked up wrapped in cellophane at the supermarket, like which is most of our experiences. So to create a ritual of holiness around a slaughtering an animal 
for food. Because let's not forget, this wasn't just wanton killing of animals. Much of that sacrifice, when it was of meat, was for food. Right, for the priests. For the priests. It it fed people. And sometimes the families of those who brought the sacrifice. This This isn't just... Uh, as it's often painted in popular culture, just slaughtering of animals to, to kill them. This was about food mm. and about honoring the life of the animal and what it and what it brought to the family, both in spiritual nourishment and physical nourishment to the family and to the priests, and also to say that it was worthy enough right. to offer the same nourishment to God. Physical, through the physical and the spiritual. So we'll look at our day and time. Okay, we're we're far away from slaughtering Bessie the cow, who we raised from birth. Um, how do we offer that spiritual nourishment, both to receive it and to give it in our day and time? To offer it to others, to take processes and make them holy, imbue them with holiness, as well as offer that spiritual nourishment to the divine, to the eternal, to that power and source in the universe that uh, flows through all things. Yeah, we describe it in different words. We have a different understanding of science. We have a different understanding of all kinds of things than the ancestors who wrote and read the, the Tanakh millennia ago. So it makes sense for me, I believe in my day, to also grapple with those same stories those same things and try and figure out, okay, well, how am I going to build those kinds of dynamic relationships in all I do? How am I going to honor those relationships as holy? Whether it's the food we eat or the person sitting next to you on the bus. And I hear you saying something even really more almost political. You're, You're not saying about those dynamic relationships. You're saying dynamics are by nature dynamic and that they require both the mutuality but also evolution, change. You cited the fact uh, when you were talking about even in the biblical day, it's not necessarily clear that what God wanted was the sacrifice. And we know that the prophets sometimes castigated the Israelites when sacrifice was in fact the norm, saying you're missing the point. You're doing the sacrifices, but you're forgetting this relational piece. Exactly. That's was that's what we read on the holiest day of the year in the book of Isaiah. That's right. Is this is not the sacrifice I want? What about caring for the poor? What about clothing the naked? Isaiah is very clear about about that. He among many other prophets. So I think this is part of the balance, and I think one of the gifts of Reformed Judaism to Judaism to the larger. Yeah. body of our people has been re-emphasis of that within our tradition. You know, we were once called prophetic Judaism, not Reformed Judaism, and there's yeah. a part of me that believes we ought to reclaim that. Right. Enough with the reform. We've reformed a lot. Maybe what we really need to emphasize is that we are the movement of prophetic Judaism again. I, many things I've come to see among the early reformers uh, in the early 1800s, both in the United States and Germany, they were actually really brilliant because they really knew the tradition. They knew it. Yeah. They knew the yeah. tradition yeah. in a way that those of us who grew up within the reform milieu have had to learn in a different way. And so this notion of prophetic Judaism, that that's a good thing to answer to, to balance both the sacrifice on the one hand and the relational on the other. So I'm going to make a pitch for keeping reform as our capital R reform (laughs) title, because what we do, one of the functions we serve in the Jewish civilization is not merely that we 
claim the right uh, in an organic fashion to shepherd the evolution of Judaism by reforming it. But we do something very important for the consciousness of Judaism itself. We remind, as you just did, all Jews, that Judaism has always been reform Judaism. And that it's always been going through this process of sacrifice, questioning the sacrifice, then the impossibility of sacrifice by virtue of the destruction of the temple, and reforming yet again with rabbinic Judaism to answer a new reality. I think that that's the real message, which is not just the message you articulated, but our imposition of that message on the memory of all Jews for all time past, because in fact, that's what we do. Well, I'm really glad you brought up that con- the concept of memory, which we know is so also an important pillar of, of Judaism, that we don't forget, that we do remember. And that's one of the reasons we read the cycle of the well, Torah, right. even though that those sacrifices aren't things we are even going to uh, uh, reenact in any way, shape, or form. But that memory plays such an important role. And, and so you can't move forward without, as we know, understanding and appreciating yeah. the past. And I think that that's, um, that is that is the gift uh, that Reform Judaism has and, and continues to also remind us that, you know, our tradition taught and our sages did teach that each person, their her, his or her own time must grapple with Torah. It wasn't just for the past. Uh, every generation has to come to the Torah uh, in their own way, in their own time. That's just a basic Talmudic principle that, that right. rabbinic Judaism uh, said. And, you know, I love, I love the commentators who, who um, you know, put these little side notes, almost asides in their commentary, you know, like Hamevin those who understand all of it, they'll get it. You'll get it. If you really get it, you'll get it, which is, you know, kind of their code language for asking you to not be so literal all the time. I think American Jews, North American Jews in particular, have succumbed to the the larger society pressure for literalism. Hmm. How do, and when I think that's just, I think that that's made it difficult to grapple with. Where the do you, Torah. where do you see that? I'm curious about that. Where do you see well, it? Well, I, I I see it with a huge ignorance of um, the average the average Jew today. I don't even want to put a label on what branch they come from, that simply is so unfamiliar with the intellectual history of our people and how we look at text that they they do what, ha- what they see in the larger society. So they believe that the Bible is inerrant. Well, that's not a Jewish, you know, that's not how we grapple with it because as critical biblical scholars will tell us, well, there's many clues that that yeah. that that it's a, that's a human document, or, or even as pious sources tell us, the midrash and Rashi, we would think, or Ibn Ezra, whom you quoted, Hamivin Yavin, those who understand will understand it. The the multifacetedness and sometimes the fractured quality of Torah is, is what we inherit as much as the wholeness. Correct, and I I, I one of the things that I I love about. Reform Judaism in particular is its honesty about yeah, that. Yeah, I hear you. And I, 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 I feel agree, like I couldn't agree more. I feel like you know, because actually you mentioned politics earlier. The politics of Judaism has 
has impinged upon our access to Torah in many ways, because then you get the quote-unquote the orthodox versus the reform versus the conservative view of how Torah operates and Torah is and halakha, Jewish law, and how that functions. Because the truth of the matter is, is that throughout our rabbinic tradition, there was this understanding by some of our greatest teachers right. that Torah had, God forbid, flaws. Right. Just like at the very least conundrums, yes. Conundrums for sure. Yeah, yeah. And and to be honest about that Absolutely. is I think um, a gift that reformed scholarship has brought to more the remi- table. More reminding, I think more that we're reminding. that we're doing. So yes. so um, so we have a problem because this incredible dynamism, this relational dynamism, which by the way you've articulated so beautifully is multidirectional. It's not just dynamism in the relationship between God and Israel but amongst Israel and with God and Torah and, and the Jewish people and time and, and the world. It's so, it's so rich and so uh, textured the way you've put it uh, that I love it. But we're talking about today our discussion is about Torah being vital and relevant. And the truth is that Torah was written in a language which most Jews don't know in a time thousands of years ago in a place many Jews have never set foot in a, in a cultural reality which is both claimed by us as our own and foreign to us by virtue of being so far away. So you're a rabbi. You actually have to translate your own tradition to the tradition's very own heirs. Yes, how that's do do what it? rabbis do. So that's do you... what rabbi, why rabbis teach are not priests. Because that's the meat, if you will, of our of our task in the world. So how do you do to what translate do you... Torah uh, into everyday settings, uh, whether it's the story of relationships and to make that relevant to the relationships that people have in their own day and time with their fractured families. Yeah. Uh, and we know the families are very fractured in our urban 21st century world. To try and show that the that human nature has a need for rest and the Sabbath in a world where we're asked to go, 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 to be in 12 places at once. Uh, these are these are the things that are the yes, not only the challenge to translate, but then to challenge to actualize. That's as difficult as as any task there is. But these are the things that will, I believe, ultimately um, sustain the Jewish people and actually sustain the world because they're not just Jewish. At the end of the day, the Bible is a gift f- for the whole world. So I. I hear an undercurrent. I'm going to tell you what I think the undercurrent of your comments is, and you tell me if I'm just projecting it or if I'm actually hearing it from you. I'm hearing an undercurrent in your comments and especially in your comments about bringing Torah to its very people, the the Jews, which is your job. I'm hearing you say that one of your tasks is to present Torah not only as a source of demand and requirement and edification in that way, but really also a source of solace. And am I, am I hearing that? In- I do think you're hearing that. I, I do believe the Torah uh, helps us navigate the process of living. It's not just a set of rules, do this, don't do that, thou shalt, thou shalt not. 
there are those in there. And they're edifying. And they are edifying. And But there are also opportunities to uplift the human condition. And whether that's uh, observance of a Sabbath, to give permission mm. to go against the cultural tidal wave of constantly doing, or it's to encourage, as we talked about the prophet earlier, don't just think you're going to sit in synagogue or say your prayers or your daily affirmations taped to your mirror and that that's enough. You have to roll up your sleeves and truly help the poor. You have, you must pay attention to income inequality in our country and around the world because that is what God wants of us. And I, I see, and I think that is the challenge. You know, a lot of times we go back to the spiritual religious discussion we touched upon. Oftentimes when people talk about them be, they're being spiritual but not religious, I get nervous because for a lot of people that's like, oh, well, I have, I give great gratitude for the world around me, and I appreciate nature, and I feel close to whatever that higher power is, you know, when I fill in the blank. But one of the powerful, powerful messages of our tradition and our Torah as Jews is that it's not just about the gratitude. It's also about the recognition of the grave injustices that exist in society and that you can't sit idly by the blood of your neighbor. And so while we are commanded to say a hundred brachot, a hundred blessings a day, and to give thanks for the rainbow or give thanks for uh, seeing a great leader, political leader, or the ocean, or, the ocean, or to, to, be, to have the mindfulness to bless our food, right? I always laugh when people talk to me about the mindful revolution, be more mindful. That's what Judaism was doing. That's what Torah is teaching us, to be a mindful human being in this world, not to just plow through it every single day. Thank God for your food. Be appreciative of what you have. Your money's not only yours. Mm. Share it with, you have, you have a command to share percentages with others. It's not just for you. So that spirituality, if it's only about gratitude or, or connecting you to nature or your higher power, is not enough. What makes Judaism different, at least, and I can only speak for Judaism, I think there are good Christians that do this as well, and sure. good, good Muslims that do this as well, and good Buddhists that do this right. as well, yeah. as, you know, that have social yeah. justice yeah. ministries yeah, of absolutely. those kinds of sorts, but that that if I'm only doing that, it's not enough that I also have to be worried about my neighbor. Okay, so the title of this program is The Bully Pulpit. You're, you've got yourself here a bully pulpit, a, a virtual one with a, a big audience. Give us an example of Torah's application today that people really, really need to hear. In your experience, you're out there, you're rabbying, uh, and you really you really live the encounter with people who need something from, of, and for Torah. So what, what, what do you find rises to the list of what they need to hear and know about Torah f- for their own wholeness or their own lives? I will tell you, it's my mission statement. I have it sewn on my <laughs> collar of my talitot, of my prayer shawls. I have it written on the wall in my office so that, you know, when I look up 
every day from the papers on my desk or the phone call. It's there, and that's the verse from a prophet Micah. What does God require of you? Only to do justice, love, compassion, and walk humbly with your God. And if I can do those three things, then I can be in relationship with others. I can ensure that that relationship is based on dignity and justice, that I have a place in my heart that's not filled with just judgment, which is, I think, a natural <laughs> human tendency to, yeah. uh, that, that you have to, to be compassionate, to love mercy, and that if I walk, do that and walk humbly with my God and remember my place in the world, that I'm not, you know, what, with whatever accomplishments I have in the world, it's not my ego that allows me to walk and lift my head up, but it's my relationship with the divine, with the eternal, with that source that makes for all life, then I can really live Torah out for me. And that's what I try to teach people, is to live Torah in that way. Because it is about, at the end of the day, that encounter with the other, with the divine, uh, that helps us, I think, walk in holiness. That's the reminder. Well, thank you very much for teaching that to us. It's been a tremendous pleasure, and I'm so proud that you, my friend and colleague here in Los Angeles, represent all of us at the national level as president of the CCAR. You are our friend in the uh, Jewish communal life here in Los Angeles and the college. It's a privilege every day. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.